the Wonky Show. A whole raft of reopening guidance this week. We'll pick it apart. Student number controls are back, but are there devils in the detail? We'll talk race and racism in HE in the wake of the George Floyd murder and making savings to university budgets. It's all coming up. Um, that, you know, frankly, has been going on since, um, you know, sort of early March and, and in some cases late February in anticipation of this, that colleagues have done right across the sector in every part, right, you know, whether we're talking about security staff, our estate staff, our academics, our leadership teams. Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Jim Dickinson and here to help us understand what's going on this week, as usual, we have two excellent guests. Uh, in Bath, Sue Rigby is the Vice-Chancellor at Bath Spa University. Sue, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, well, is, is there any week that has a highlight that doesn't involve Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson at the moment? <laughs> hard to say, really. And, and, and is there anything specific from that ongoing saga that you, uh, you know, you would pick out? Well, I, I did really enjoy yesterday um, Boris Johnson taking umbrage at being questioned by the leader of the opposition, and I'm, I'm thinking about ways to work that into my senior team going forward. I think <laughs> disagreement from the opposition should never be permitted in any any circumstances. Excellent. And in Cambridge, Jonathan Grant is vice president and vice principal service at King's College London. Jonathan, your reason to be cheerful from the week. Well, I've watched Have I Got News For You twice now, um, the last episode, which sort of resonates quite um, closely with Sue's comment. Um, but every time you need to cheer yourself up, just put that on for five minutes. Excellent. So, yes, we start this week with bubbles. We've had guidance on reopening from QAA, Advance HE, UUK and DFE, with the press picking up on some of the more restrictive social mixing ideas that have been floating around the sector. Sue, what's going on? Well, ever such a lot of people are telling me how to reopen my university. And uh, all I can do is be incredibly grateful to them all. And and if there's any degree to which I feel like I'm being taught to suck eggs, I'm trying to swallow very hard and, and just be very, very grateful. Um, but yes, every, Department for Education are telling us how to open buildings. They say we should operate a risk assessment. Um, QAA are telling us how to maintain standards. The Department for Education is reminding us that we have to maintain standards at the same time as being a university. Universities UK have come up with, a, I think, a 27-page guideline of high-level principles on how we reopen. Um, and, and with all of that, I've, I've got a lot of reading to do, and I don't think I've really got time to reopen my university before September, because I think it'll take me until then to understand what I'm meant to be doing. And, I mean, Jonathan, you, you will have read some of this stuff. Is, 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 it, is, it, is it, what, what's it for? Well, exactly, Jim. It seems, you know, it's, it's blowing bubbles, isn't it? Um, the, um, we, we've got into a state where our response, I think, to a lot of this crisis is to um, issue guidance from government um, where the sort of the nuances of locality are not understood. Um, and there's a sort of um, the concept of institutional autonomy has suddenly disappeared. Um, and actually on the ground in you know, Atkins um, and Bath Spa and probably all the universities around the country, we got teams who are examining all these um, issues and looking at them in considerable depth and coming up with appropriate solutions for their physical spaces, for their context and for their students. So um, I, I do worry that we are seeing too much guidance and um, not enough reliance on sort of um, local and common um, sense in applying all of this. 
So, so is there a sting though in in in, the, in that sense that you know you're complete you're, you know you're autonomous it's up to you how, how you open but is there a sting in that insofar as you know the subtext of that is you're responsible you're not getting any help and you'll find the money to do this from your existing budgets you're on your own and you'll get the blame yes well i think i think that is a position that universities have got used to occupying over the last little while i mean i've, I've been standing back from all this because the details just too tedious really to go into in any detail and i've been thinking what are these different bodies trying to get us to do. I, I have to say, I think the Department for Education guidance has been written to make sure that we have access to all of the other guidance the, the, the government <laughs> yeah. has, has given yeah. us, which is actually quite useful. You have it in one place and you can go, just click through. So so I can see that point. And I've tried to ignore things like them saying, you know, very, very obvious things like if you can move home, you can move into student accommodation. And really to, to engage with any of these documents, you have to turn off the no shit Sherlock button in your head. Um, the QAA guidance is is brilliant actually it's the only one that suggests that we should engage with our students to find out how they feel about reopening and I think for that alone it makes it the outstanding guidance we have available. Universities UK is as you'd expect very top down very comprehensive very well written but I have to say I think it's designed to make everybody else not universities feel like we're all speaking with the same voice and that if you're an international student it's fine to come to Britain in the autumn. I, th- I think broadly they're all written for different audiences and only a peripheral audience really is university senior leaders. Jonathan, is there anything missing from all of it? You know, are there things that, you know, from from, from your chatter with, with others that, you know, people really do need advice and help with in terms of kind of solving thorny problems or, you know, big tensions? Yes and no, I think. So, I mean, it's so comprehensive, everything's kind of covered, but n- not in a sort of necessarily helpful way. Um, I, I think, you know, sort of some of the um, symbolic stuff as much as anything. Um, you know, for example, um, face masks. Um, so, you know, the scientific evidence on there is increasingly that it's probably a good idea to wear some form of face masks. Um, the cultural, um, imperative in um, Asian countries is to be seen to be wearing face masks. So what is our policy on campus come September? Do we uh, mandate that people have to wear face masks on campus? There's quite a good argument for that, but it also seems um, quite a draconian position to take as well. Um, So, you know, I I think Sue and and you, Jim, are absolutely right. I think there's a lot of um, covering one's backside coming from government at the moment in in, in this guidance. Um, And um, the challenge for universities is to interpret that in a way that both protects them somehow um, in any sort of long-term political um, shenanigans that are going to happen, but also um, most crucially protects their students and staff. Um, And that's got to be the, the key thing that we look at at all times. So, so I've had my eye on on local press coverage as usual this week, and and, and I saw you you, you had uh, a, a few things to say to the local press about student accommodation this week in Bath, as as many vice chancellors will do around the country. What's the what's the sort of interaction like at the moment between kind of public health officials locally and, and universities? Because you know these kind of local outbreak plans that public health directors are having to develop, you know, don't look necessarily like they've taken into account a million students moving out in September. No, but I think all of us who are working with local government at the moment have the utmost respect and sympathy for what they're doing but they're being told by the government what's happening I think about 25 minutes before the announcement in the House of Commons (laughs) or or, or two hours later yeah or two hours later and if it's in the Um, House of Commons you're lucky aren't you yes Yes, sometimes it's just in in a government minister's mind and they never get around to articulating it but councils are meant to respond so I think we'll be working very closely with the council with Public Health England because 
you know, what I and I guess all of my colleagues across the UK are terrified of is that there's some kind of COVID-19 outbreak associated with the university. And the risk has to exist particularly at the start of term because lots of people from different geographical regions are going to move to co-locate and we can't keep them all absolutely separate from one another. So there is a risk that one infected person absolutely accidentally starts a transmission that, that not only shuts that university down, but brings a real kind of frisson of fear to a locality. And universities have to sit amicably in their region, otherwise they can't do the good that they're mandated to do. Yeah. And, and Jonathan, you know, just from a sort of, you know, wider perspective, you know, if we add up all of the things that universities are being expected to do in all of this guidance, it's a hell of a lot of things to do between now and September in a period where, in theory, there's much less money around to do it because people are having to look at their budgets and, you know, ask serious questions. Yeah. And, and in one sense, that's the existential threat that we're facing, I think, as a sector. Now, I, I'm actually more optimistic than that. Um, but the sheer workload um, that, you know, frankly, has been go- going on since, um, you know, sort of early March and, and in some cases late February in anticipation of this, that colleagues have done right across the sector in every part, right, you know, whether we're talking about security staff, our estate staff, our academics, our leadership teams, um, that the sheer volume of work that has gone on over the last um, few months is extraordinary. And there's no um, sort of indication that that's going to let up. And I think that's a real concern um, for, for the whole sector. How do we sustain um, this intense pace um, and intense pressure at the same time? Um, and I, I think we have to be live to that. I don't have the answer to it, but I, but I do think um, at some point we, we, we need to acknowledge the amount of change that has occurred in such a short amount of period and the amount of change that needs to occur over the next few months. Um, but at the same time, completely acknowledge the um, amazing um, sort of contribution universities across the country actually made in responding to the pandemic. So not only have we been reorganizing our business models, um, but you know our students have been volunteering, our staff have been shifting to clinical practice, um, our researchers are, are working flat out. Um, so right across the mix, you've suddenly seen sort of a, a productivity improvement, to sort of use that horrendous phrase, which has probably gone up 100, 200%. Um, and, and that's not sustainable over the midterm. No, and, and, and Sue, I mean, you know, you talk about talking to the public health officials in local authorities. At least in theory, they've had a little bit of extra funding to deal with the pandemic. You know, is it is it realistic and reasonable, given the wider you know, both direct and indirect responsibilities that are being placed on universities around, you know, health of a hell of a lot of people to expect them to be able to do it on no extra money? It's tricky. I mean, I I, I think I... I don't speak for other vice chancellors when I say this, but I think we are being asked to value our our autonomy at the moment and put an actual financial value on being autonomous. And I'm very, very nervous about accepting money from any source other than grants and student income and a bit of philanthropy would be nice if anybody wanted to bung me a million quid. But, you know, uh, the, the more we get bailed out, the more we get supported, the more we get funds to help us to do what we're told to do, the more our autonomy is compromised by that support. And I do think universities have to think about how much pain they're prepared to take to remain in that position of being able to choose how they respond to a crisis or indeed an opportunity going forward. I think we might come out of this with the worst of both worlds where we're insufficiently financially supported, but no longer fully autonomous agencies. Yeah, I, I, you know, if you look at um, the demand, you know, the demand for higher education in the UK is not going away in a five to or a three to five year timeline. Um, the demand for impactful research is not going away in that timeline. 
and the demand for you know sort of civic institutions is not going to go away in a three to five year timeline. So th- this crisis, and it's an absolute crisis, um, but it is a short term crisis. And we've got to be very careful strategically what we give away in that short term, because it will have a longer term impact. Um, and I, I, I do worry um, that um, if we do get bailouts, which I don't think we will, because we're clearly bottom of the pile, but if we do get some form of bailout, um, the conditions that would be attached to that would be too... Um, sort of too compromising on our autonomy and our purpose as um, universities. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, my name is Tamina Chowdhury and I'm the Vice President for Professional Social Sciences at Middlesex University Students' Union. So I originally approached Wonky asking if they'd like a blog. Universities need to prepare for the impact that COVID is going to have on students of colour as they plan for reopening. Um, in my original piece, I said that relationships and trust between UK universities and students of colour weren't always the best. But then the events from America completely overtook me and the lack of trust was suddenly exposed all over social media. And so my piece ended up being about how race, COVID and HE are all going to converge in, in September. Um, so the piece is essentially on racism in higher education and how it's contributing and is part of the systematic racism that exists within the wider society and how it can and should be changed in HE. Um, how COVID has exposed the disparities between BAME and non-BAME and that this shouldn't be two separate conversations, it's linked. Universities should be using the current situation to be closing these gaps um, which have been exposed and highlighted by COVID. It also talks about what universities can and should be doing from now on. Stop saying that we don't have a race problem. This type of mindset holds back students from being background. The issues and barriers that these students face have been so deeply rooted within society and institutions that failing to acknowledge them is detrimental in how they are able to develop and be treated equally. Um, keep BAME students at the centre of key decisions made. They need to be considered a lot more than non-BAME students because they've not had a head start because of the colour of their skin. Hello, my name is Bob O'Keefe and I'm Vice Principal for the Student Experience at Royal Holloway University of London. I was previously the Dean of Management and Economics. In my article we saw the crash coming I argue that we have failed to plan for a potential downturn in the number of Chinese students enrolling in UK business schools and in all likelihood we now see a major crash. It's fair to say that the seemingly endless supply of Chinese students has made us lazy. What we provide to Chinese business students both undergraduate and postgraduate has been cracking for a few years. Education in China is better and more flexible than it was even 10 years ago, and the expectations of students and parents are changing fast. So must we. And don't forget, we'd love to have your contribution on the site. If you'd like to pitch us a piece, drop us an email on teamupwonky.com with your idea, and we'll be in touch. Now, next up, the Department for Education has released further details of its proposed student number cap, and it's controversial. Jonathan, tell us more. Yeah, well, um, you know, a, a bit like our earlier conversation, we got another bit of guidance, um, which, you know, doesn't really make sense and creates up a, a bunch of um, perverse or potentially perverse incentives and challenges, I think, for the, the sector um, at a time when um, we need support um, from government and we're not necessarily getting that. I think the um, the, the sort of premise of this is, is to allow universities to um, increase um, domestic students whilst 
um, not creating a, a dogfight for enrollments, um, which is you know obviously the right thing to do. Um, but you know, as everybody knows in the sector, predicting student enrollments is um, challenging in the best of times, and um, is even more challenging in the worst of times. Um, the the risk um, and the financial penalties about over enrollment. Um, in this guidance where if you go one over um, the cap, you, 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 you get a, a massive financial hit. Um, seems strange from a policy point of view because it, it, it sort of creates two bookend incentives. One is that you, um, you sort of go well below um, the cap or B is you go, well, stuff it. I'll just go miles over the cap um, because there's no difference between one and 100, if you like. Um, so that, that that just seems odd, um, I think. Um, at a personal level, you know, I, I find it very bizarre that we have a um, so-called sort of conservative um, government um, bringing in um, you know, sort of, uh, sort of, uh, almost a standardless market management technique like this. Um, and, you know, I think that's something to reflect on. I don't know, um, if I've got the answers to that. Um, and, um, you know, I think there's some deep complexities around here in, in the sense that as I understand it, um, it is based, um, the, the cap, is the student number control or is around, you know, are we looking at the students that accepted or are we looking at um, those who have been offered um, and how that's going to work with um, all the clearing um, and clearing plus and what have you. So I, I think what it's, you know, and the final point in that is, is obviously different for different um, countries in the United Kingdom. So um, there's a deep level of complexity, which I, I have to say I have yet to get my head fully into. Um, I did speak to um, one of my colleagues at King's um, yesterday when I saw um, we're going to be talking about this and he had spent you know the last 24 hours um, reading the guidance over and over again. And I don't think he had fully um, understood all the um, nuances. So, um, you know, I, I, again, you know, um, the word dog's dinner comes to my mind quite quickly. Um, I'm trying to be charitable, but I think we're still trying to work out what it actually really, really means. Um, and so whilst I think, um, you know, that the overall objective is probably right in the context that the detail of here um, seems to be written by um, people who don't really understand the processes by which um, we enrol students. So, so if I was Michelle Donnellan, then uh, I would say, well, you know, look, that, you know, 30,000 offers got converted to unconditional in the week after, you know, the weeks following the lockdown announced. So this, this had to be done, didn't it? Well, th there certainly was some um, rapid action on the part of some <laughs> universities. Uh, I, I think there is a case to be made for number caps. I, I think Jonathan's already kind of covered that. Um, I think somewhere in the process of deciding what they should be, ideas like simplicity and clarity have been omitted from the uh, civil servants' dictionaries. Uh, and indeed, I think what would be really useful is if vice-chancellors could write a high-level principles guide to send to people who want to tell universities what to do in future. Um, I think we could probably get it into under 27 pages. Um, I, I, I slightly blame the university sector though for bringing this to bear because we are really good at doing a sort of chicken little analysis of what's going to happen next you know we run around saying the sky is falling and you know there was a perfect example of that in iNews yesterday um, and, and then as, as the scenario unfurls and actually it doesn't look like the sky is falling we then resent the actions of, of somebody of a third party who's trying to help us because they've actually taken literally what we meant in a slightly sort of SCRO, well, we're all buggered, aren't we, kind of context. Um, and and I, I do think as, as 
you know, clever institutions, we've forgotten that sometimes you don't say the first thing that crosses your mind as as it crosses your mind. And really, maybe we, we jumped too early in saying that we weren't going to get any international students next year. And we jumped too early in assuming that applicants would be very radical in their approach to to entering university this year. Actually, it turns out applicants are quite conservative in the way that they approach this. So, you know, it, it is a dog's breakfast. Absolutely right, as Jonathan just said. But I'm not sure that we're entirely blameless in, you know, at least creating the context where a dog could be fed its dinner. Jonathan, is there a danger that, you know, that, I mean, the idea here, the policy idea here is that, you know, the pain is spread. But is there a danger that if you spread the pain, you know, everybody ends up ill rather than, you know, they're just being a, a small number of casualties that maybe could have been bailed out? Well, we, we, I mean, yes. I mean, that's that's speculation. I, I do have to go back um, I, about the sort of rush for un- unconditional offers. Um, and whilst I think it was right to pause that, given where we've ended up with how A-levels will be marked, I don't actually think um, offering um, sort of unconditional offers based on predicted grades when students were applying is absolutely a ridiculous position to be in. Um, so, you know, the, 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 I, I mean, like Sue just said, there, there was a sort of knee-jerk reaction um, to a bunch of quite rational behaviours, um, and that has led us down this path um, to um, student gap um, caps. And if we had just paused um, and understood, which we did not know at that time, but had a better understanding of how um, the A-levels would be assessed, um, actually a system which was based on um, broadly accepting the offers that were out there and then some kind of arbitrage for those who obviously um, put out more offers than they could take on would, would have, in my view, seemed to be a more simplistic approach um, and, and clearer approach to take. But um, again, you know, as Sue said, I think the sector um, throughout this crisis, actually, and, and preceding this crisis, has brought a lot of its, this pain upon itself. Um, the fact is that we are not the flavour of the month um, in this government um, for reasons that are entirely understandable. And therefore, every time we go pleading for money, um, we are at the bottom of the pile because there are other sectors pleading for money as well. And they are higher up that priority list. And we, we just got to accept that. And, and so while we're on, the, the, this, this uh, you know, the additional places, the 10,000 places, the, the kind of nursing and health is what it is but uh, DK obviously on the site this morning has done an analysis of the of the others you know the other places and you know um, has, has uh, if, if nothing else has pointed out that all of the Russell group are entitled to bid and none of million plus are entitled to bid and and, and, it, and it seems when we you know one aspect of the detail is that we've now abandoned the benchmarking character approach of, of TEF and DFE now seems to be going for really quite raw judgments about what counts as a good quality provider. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, as someone who has invested, I think, about six months of my life in the TEF, it was a real pity to see that, you know, TEF ratings of quality of teaching didn't actually have any bearing on decisions about who could take extra students. Um, And when you've got TEF gold institutions that can't apply for extra student numbers and TEF bronze institutions that can, then I think that's a real disappointment in terms of TEF offering the, the opportunity. However, badly freight however complex the process was the outcomes had judgment involved in them taking these two metrics which are eight to ten years out of date um, and applying them in this way simply privileges universities that take middle-class students they happen to be the Russell group but what it's doing really is getting something deeper and I think slightly creepier which is that it's privileging the middle class over anybody else as long as you've 
come from a supportive background so you won't drop out of university and you've had the support of education that means that you're probably going to get a good job at the end of it then the institutions that you choose are now privileged to take more students presumably like you and I think it's completely incompatible with any kind of inclusivity or WP agenda Uh, and what it makes me wonder is exactly where which universities the people went to who were in a position to make this decision and I think it's a failure of inclusivity in in those ranks as well that's manifest here. And and Jonathan, the the subject choice is interesting here as well, isn't it? So, you know, that might give us some signals about what is a valuable, you know, counted as a valuable course. You know, architecture, science, maths, social work, engineering and veterinary science. Those are, you know, these are apparently the valuable subjects where we apparently do need more students, are they? Well, so, um, I mean, that opens up another can of worms, doesn't it? In a long running um, debate we've been having in the sector about, you know, what is value and how we measure value of university degrees. Um, You know, in one sense, I, I've got no issue with government um, saying that as a nation, we think these are the um, priority skill areas that we need to be training a cohort of young people around um, and indeed putting incentives in place to support that. Um, what I worry about is that is that at the expense of other disciplines, other subject areas, um, and indeed the students who want to study those subject areas. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, 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 you know, is an is an interesting signal coming from government in terms of the subject choices. Um, I don't think we're that surprised by it, um, but I do think again it, it has a, a bundle of consequences, which you know, kind of understandably, um, have not been thought through, and, and we're going to be unwinding some of those um, in my three to five year to time horizon rather than the. Um, 18 to 24 month one. Now it's time for Yes But Does It Correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's Associate Editor, David Kernahan. Welcome to Yes But Does It Correlate? The podcast segment that is a devolved matter. With all the attention given to cross-border student flows recently, I thought I'd take a look at where Welsh domiciled students tend to end up. I've plotted the number of Welsh domiciled first-year full-time first-degree students at every provider in England against the total number of UK students. Do Welsh students tend to go to larger English providers? Do they behave in the same way as other students in the UK? Whose coat is that jacket? Yes, but does it correlate? Yeah, so so I'm going to say yes, um, but that's based on a 50-50 yeah, I, I, I suspect the answer is yes, um, broadly speaking. Yep. Well, I have to say no, don't I? Because you otherwise do. there's <laughs> no inherent dramatic tension in this podcast at all. And I, I think it's disappointing that we're agreeing with one another so much. So, no, I, I think that Welsh students will not behave in the same way as English students. I think they'll go to attractive universities, probably in rural settings quite close to the Welsh border, um, possibly with grade one listed buildings as part of their infrastructure. And I look forward to welcoming them. <laughs> and cattle grids, yeah. <laughs> the answer is no, it does not. R squared is about 0.2, so a surprisingly low correlation. Welsh domiciled students do tend to go to providers in England that are near Wales, with UE, Liverpool John Moores and Chester, the big recruiters in this very specialised market. Data is from the HESA student record for 2018-19 and Llenad Yordatan Bodoli Nidwif Wedi Eblostio. Now, next up, the murder of George Floyd in Minnesota has generated a wave of both physical and online protests this week, and universities in the UK have faced significant criticism. Sue, tell us more. Well, just that. I mean, every so often an, an event happens which is both awful and, and 
emblematic and you can almost feel the the rage and the frustration and the and the upset racing around the world and and the killing of George Floyd is is one of those events isn't it and it makes us all reflect on how underlying societies of which we're very proud there is a tendency to behave in ways that take us back 150 or 200 years to a past that we deplore um, the university sector has to respond to that um, but in any event was challenged to respond to all of the different minority student groups that, that we try to serve and uh, I thought that the piece by uh, Tamina Chowdhury was was really pertinent to that um, very frank very practical very angry um, and something to make us all sit up and take notice Jonathan yeah the, 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 you know, Tamina points out this, you know, this process that, you know, I mean, almost every organisation, their, their social media team has felt the need to, you know, take part in Blackout Tuesday and, you know, post messages of solidarity, but have then been, you know, held to account. Uh, and, and universities have very much been in, in, in the middle of that. Uh, uh, you know, what, 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 what's going on there? Is, 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 that, is, that, is that reasonable? You know, is that unreasonable? You know, what's, what, what should we take from that? Well, I think it's deeply reasonable. Um, and, and, you know, and um, it, it's about anger and justifiable anger. Um, you know, we've seen this week um, the, you know, frankly, um, institutional racism um, that has been associated with excess deaths of our BAME community. We still don't understand that. Um, I um, challenge any university to actually hand on heart to say they're not institutionally racist. Um, you know, that's not a criticism. That's an observation looking at the data. Um, and this is a issue that has been around for, you know, probably a generation. Um, and the, you know, as Sue just said, the, the events in the US have been um, created a, a catalyst Um and appropriately so. Um, my worry um, and nervousness um, is that we're seeing lots of fine words, um, and they are fine words and they are appropriate words, um, but actually we need to move beyond those words and see action and see change. Um, and how we do that, I don't have the answer to that. And, and frankly, as a you know a white guy of privilege, um, I think it would be somewhat absurd for me to propose the answer. I think there's got to be um, a sort of period of deep, deep listening um, to, you know, within the sector to our students um, and staff, um, but actually right across the UK and right across the um, Western world, because this, this, this is a long running stain on how our societies are organised. Um, and you cannot get away from the fact that there is, institutional racism right across every sector of society um, because that's what the data tells us and and, and we, we either carry on with the warm words that we've seen pouring across um, the the social media um, over the past week or we see this as one of those moments um, where we actually start to try to address these fundamental inequalities in our society. So Tamina points out that, uh, you know, something I've definitely, you know, I spotted earlier on in the week where there was a chunk of my kind of social timeline that was about this. And then another chunk of my social timeline that was about, you know, the increasingly preposterous reopening guidance that was appearing from every national organisation. And they were sort of two totally separate timelines. But in many ways, given what we know about the way, you know, COVID exacerbates existing inequalities, Tamina's right, isn't she, when she says that the way in which universities reopen has a direct you know bearing on an impact on this this kind of wider issue of of, of race and racism yes she's completely right and the challenge is going to be to address all of those areas of inclusivity that are opened up by covid's 
um, exaggeration of inequality properly at the same time as getting campuses running in the autumn. You know, we've already established that that's going to be quite a complicated issue. Um, adding the subtlety of opening the campus well for every group of students is is the added complexity. Um, it's a challenge we just have to rise to. It, it, a lot of the time there is a degree of intersectionality so that we know that uh, BAME students may be preferentially exposed to the virus or preferentially affected by it. We can make adjustments that mean that we can teach people who are not able to be present physically on campus to more or less the same standard as people who can. And that will also then benefit students with disabilities, students with caring responsibilities and, and so on. But I, I think what we have to do coming out of this, as Jonathan said, is listen very hard. I think we've almost work hardened the problem in universities by taking baby steps so often that our BAME students are now furious with us most of the time. And I think probably they're quite right to be. We have to make a step change in this. Whether we can actually do that at the same time as moving into this rather agile blended model uh, is a requirement that, that Tamina is, is, is facing us with. Uh, it depends on the bandwidth of individual universities to what extent they meet that challenge, mm. I suspect. And, and some of this is going to be really tough, isn't it, Jonathan? Because you know, I, mean, I was talking to someone the other day, you know, that, that there, there are going to be in the next four or five weeks really, really difficult decisions about, you know, who gets those little shards of contact hours that are available once all the estates people have come back with their tape measures and said, what's just possible? And, you know, as well as thinking about, you know, whether, whether to privilege first years or whether to privilege, you know, people, international students who've had a lot of money or whether to privilege certain subjects who will need particular, you know, lab access or whatever, we probably do also need to think about the 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 the, the kind of socioeconomic and and racial and and you know other characteristics distribution of students amongst subjects, don't we? And you know, as you said, Jim, it, it is hard, um, and, and I, I don't have the solutions. I think the um, you know the, the approach is is an approach of principle, um, and we need to be ensuring that in all these um, short term decisions that we are taking that we have built in some kind of um equality impact assessment or whatever jargon you want to use to ensure that we are not unintentionally um exaggerating the existing inequities that um operate within um higher education um but again you know th those are easy words for me to say um and quite hard to do um, so, um, you know, at, at, you know, I think it comes down to what do universities at the end of the day want to prioritize? Um, and I would, um, put this right at the top of the list, um, you know, at King's, you know, half our undergraduate, um, intakers from, um, BAME background. Um, and it's a really, um, pertinent issue for us as an institution. Um, but understanding how those inequities will pay out, in through the covid lens is is not easy um and needs some deep thought and deep resource in a resource constrained environment now just to take a second to tell you uh, a little bit about our forthcoming wonky at home event on uh, political engagement politics is transforming rapidly as the covid crisis grips the government civil service and the media uh, and universities are playing a critical role in the global fight back against the virus but are struggling to get the airtime needed for long-term support or for much positive government recognition as the threat of financial disaster for some beckons at the same time there's also chatter about how the government might use this opportunity to realize a long-held ambition to reshape and reform ag Against this backdrop, the daily reality of influencing is changing. Meetings are happening online, 
So there are stiffer scripted engagements and reduced opportunities for the subtle human crafts of influence and hustle. And with the usual political scene of Westminster drinks and Mayfair dinners on indefinite hold, the back channel is taking place almost entirely on WhatsApp. So at, at, at our wonky at home event, organised with Public First, a public policy strategy and communications consultancy with a specialism in education, uh, we're going to ask how universities can cut through the noise, use new tools and engage in the shifting landscape and influence policy so that the sector can not just emerge from the crisis intact, but thrive in a post-COVID world. So that's wonky at home, university influence in a crisis. This coming Monday, as long as you're listening to the podcast over the weekend, uh, check it out on wonky.com forward slash events. And finally, with some of the scenarios modelling major reductions in fee income, most universities are trying to save money when there's plenty of pressure to spend more. Jonathan, what does that look like? Well, I want to say again, another dog's, dog's breakfast, but um, I'm, I'll, <laughs> I'll go dog's lunch this time. We've had dinner. So, um, so, so yeah, no, but in all seriousness, I think that there's a, there's a number of issues here that we um, need to be live to. Um, and the first is that as a sector rather than individual institutions, um, it seems to me that we need to understand the difference between the, the short-term financial consequences and the mid to long-term. So it goes back to my earlier comment. Um, the demand for higher education is not going to go away. Um, that's an evidence-based comment. We know that with the demographics in the UK and we know that with demographics internationally. So um, the sort of fundamental proposition that we as universities are offering um, is going to probably strengthen over the midterm. Um, so the question is, how do we navigate um, this crisis to re-emerge at that point? Um, and that's no different to whether we were an airline industry or um, running cinemas or having a, um, a boutique um, shop selling shoes. Um, so, so we are, if you like, in, in the same sense there. I think the, the interesting um, question, which I sort of find myself coming back to, is um, sort of twofold. And, you know, the first is, um, do we have too many universities in the UK? Um, and I, I don't have a view on that, but I do know that I have heard senior politicians from both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party um, voice the view that they think we do. Um, and therefore, I think there is a risk um, that um, part of the unwritten agenda coming out of government is to see the sector consolidate. Um, and therefore, they may be willing to let um, some institutions um, effectively go bankrupt. And then when they go bankrupt, um, sort of step in and engineer some form of merger um, or not, whether that's in the long-term interest of the sector. Um, you know, I think we can um, debate. Um, and then the second issue, which is probably more relevant um, to the um, research intensive universities in the Russell Group, and I'm, I'm not making a special case here at all, um, but it goes to the way that we fund research. And um, it's interesting, I was reading some work um, coming out of Australia um, yesterday, which was making exactly the same argument. Um, and government um, for, you know, for 30 years um, has encouraged universities to um, undertake research and has um, seen quite significant increases in research funding, um, especially to universities and, and actually uniquely in the UK context to universities. Um, and But that research um, has been built on the shoulders of international student fees um, because we lose money, as you well know, on, on that research. So I think we have to um, come out of this and really look at the issue of you know so-called full economic costs um, and government through UKRI um, and the other funders have to start 
paying the full economic costs of research. Um, and I think if they did that, then you would um, almost instantaneously, for the research-intense universities, change the financial business model, which I think will liberate a lot of activity. So, so what does this look like in uh, you know another part of the sector? It's an interesting question, and, and I've been listening to Jonathan and, and realising, you know, just thinking of us as one sector is is misleading because there are different challenges and different solutions right across the piece. Um, a university like mine depends for its bread and butter on student recruitment. Um, I have to say at the moment, student recruitment this year looks exactly like it did last year uh, and the year before. Um, so I don't know yet. I mean, we have done some pretty radical scenario planning. My sense is that universities are still in that mindset where we realise there's a financial crisis and we're looking for someone to bail us out or we're looking for something that can avoid pain and I suspect that what we should be doing is looking at for example the the response of uh, Irish universities to the financial crash uh, seven or eight years ago where you know pay was affected, the opportunities that universities had was was diminished for a significant period of time. They all survived. They're all thriving now. But I think we might have to look at some years where universities just get by and where we do end up selling some of our assets and losing some of our portfolio in order to get through a short-term dip in funding. Um, and I think what's missing at the moment is any rational arguments about how poor the sector is is enabled to become in order that that at the end of it we we all recover um there's no question if we aggregated that we have plenty of money to get through this but of course we're we're all autonomous um but most institutions can get through if they do radical things sell buildings disperse assets i'm not saying that they ought to but at the moment we're still in that mindset of, of regarding that as unthinkable and i think we have to move into the mindset of looking at everything that we've got that has value and wondering whether that on aggregate is enough to keep us going through what's almost certainly a v-shaped dip in recruitment uh, particularly of international students but i think that the, the crucial point of what sue just said um is that we've got to take responsibility for this as universities as in a sector because government is not going to bail us out um and i, I still think um, there is um, conversations going on where people think there's going to be a bailout um, and there's not going to be a bailout. So the sooner we get that into our heads, then we can move forward and start actioning and engaging with some of the ideas Sue was just mentioning. So that's about it for this week. To find out more about anything we've discussed today, you'll find links on the episode page at wonky.com where you can also leave your thoughts and comments. Don't forget you can subscribe to us automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on your favourite podcast directory or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you think you've got what it takes to be a guest on the show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks again to our guests, Sue and Jonathan, to everyone at Team Wonky for making the show happen and of course to you for listening. Until next week, stay wonky.